The following program may contain potty talk. No guarantee, but it just may. It's Thursday, December 10th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A few days ago, I spoke about the tendency in American life to offer an unasked for and very unlikely to be heeded piece of resignation advice to one's foes. The Georgia Secretary of State should resign. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State should resign. No, she tells the politicians telling her to resign. They're the ones who should resign. Today in Charlottesville, Virginia, the chief of police held a press conference. At issue, the local Unitarian Church had had a 68-year-old member they said was racially profiled by the police department, and their leader, Reverend Dr. Linda Olson Peebles, had called on the police to give an apology. Some student groups at UVA called for the police officers' firings. Today, police chief Dr. Rashal Brackney, college town, everyone's doctor, had this to say about the good Reverend Dr. Peoples. There is an aspect of this complaint to which I wholeheartedly agree with Reverend Olson Peoples. Action and accountability are needed. The call to apologize or to be terminated for their actions should start with Reverend Dr. Linda Olson Peoples and their board members who all signed off on this. Me apologize? <laughs> you apologize. Me resign? Us resign? You resign? No one resigned. And everyone sighed. Me, I pivoted to remembrances of things Trump and remembrances of people appointed by Trump. The remembrance spotlight today is on Matthew Whitaker. Remember him? He was acting attorney general for three months and one week at the height of questions over whether Robert Mueller might be fired. This pre-Bill Barr figure had been a U.S. attorney in the past, so that was an actual item on his resume that was heartening, but there was another bit that was quite disquieting. After leaving government service, Whitaker was on the board of a patent company that peddled, well, a certain product. This product was a toilet. And not just any toilet for anyone, a toilet for gents. Gents of a certain bodily dimension. Yes, the masculine toilet was marketed for those men whose penises were too big for a normal toilet. For a time, the Attorney General of the United States was behind the big dick toilet. Stephen Colbert has details. The idea behind this actual patent application supported by, again, the Attorney General of the United States is that well-endowed men would dip a, let's say, toe in the water <laughs> of a regular toilet and here's the actual patent application drawing showing that on the manly throne, the distance between the rim and the water is at least 12 inches. You know, the audience laughed, but apparently they just didn't have the eye for human resources that the White House did. Not the eye for talent, nor the putts for pooping. The wang doodle accommodating insight of Matthew Whitaker and his big dick toilet. The company wound up being shut down amidst fraud investigations, and Matthew Whitaker's Wikipedia page does not even mention this, the only important thing about him. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about those wacky Georgia Republicans and their inability to cover themselves in anything ethical, but also my inability not to have to come to their defense. But first... We rejoin our conversation with Jim Tankersley, author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. 
as we get into the race and gender portions of this classic class-based debate. Still looking for the perfect holiday gift? Everything is 30% off at the Slate Shop now through the holidays. Maybe you're a Gabfest fan, a Slow Burn fan, a Prudy devotee, devotee Prudé. Maybe you're a just diehard, or maybe you and your family just support loving a news organization via clothing. Visit shop.slate.com with discounts automatically applied to checkout. You know why I'm playing it fast and loose with this ad? Because no advertiser is going to reject it and say, well, they weren't really happy. You have to do a redo. It's a house ad. I can let it go wild, baby. Shop at slate.com. 30% off. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Yesterday, you heard me speak with Jim Tankersley, author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class, and we discussed how America's burgeoning middle class was largely accidental, aided a bit by landmark legislation like the Civil Rights Act. In fact, one study cited in the book offers a picture of just how much of the growth of the boom years of the post-war period could be attributed to lowering barriers on women and minorities entering the workplace. The figure was 40% of the growth. Wow. Jim agreed. Yeah, no, it's it's a really big it's a really big number, which is you know like forty percent of the growth since nineteen sixty has come from reducing barriers for women and for men of color to enter the workforce to get the education they need to compete for the the best and highest paying and highest skilled most productive jobs in the economy and to actually reduce the discrimination that holds them back from those jobs. So to step back for just a second, my argument is if we want a vibrant middle class with great middle-class jobs, we basically need to do two things. One is we need to empower uh, a new generation of entrepreneurs who are going to actually invest in the types of industries and jobs that'll create good middle-class jobs. And the second thing is we need a hot economy for a long time. That, that is just like, that is what we learned from the, the post-war era. You need sustained economic growth with low unemployment for a long time. And it needs to be... Um, my argument is based on productivity gains because you can't just fiscally and you know interest rate and other stimulus your way all the way to to full employment and beyond for decades at a time. I mean, politically, it's just not feasible. So my argument is we've got a lot of talented people still being held back from doing what they're best at if we just invested once again in tearing down the barriers to advancement for them in in completing the work of civil rights. We could have another productivity boom that creates a growth boom that could keep unemployment low and actually like make every job in America pay a lot better and produce more jobs that are sort of like good, fulfilling middle class jobs. Okay, let me uh, let me press you on that. 
Please. So if the project of having a burgeoning middle class, a robust middle class is good economic conditions, one of your prescriptions is we should have a good economy. How's that not circular reasoning? I hear what you're saying. I, I, uh, it is. And that's part of what I'm saying is this is a positive feedback loop that, okay. um, that if, we, if we have good economic growth uh, with low unemployment that then creates good middle class jobs, you are then creating the conditions for more people to advance to the types of entrepreneurship, innovation, all the good things that economists will tell you you need to sustain that kind of growth. So yeah, it's a little bit like um, by not having tight labor markets for the last 40 years, we've made it hard to have tight labor markets. Yeah. If it's true that 40% of the growth is from knocking down barriers for women and actually black men, how much is left? How much growth is left due to barriers still to be knocked down? There's a lot. I cited several different studies in the book and to try to piece together an answer. I mean, there are multi-trillions of dollars, I think, of economic output still to be had just from the basic standpoint of, you know, if we could get every woman in America and every non-white man in America into a job that allows her or him to to deploy their full potential and give them the educational opportunities to maximize that potential. I think it's very easy to say you, you could have an acceleration of economic growth that would massively outstrip the kind of, even what we saw in the last couple of years of fiscal stimulus and low interest rates under President Trump. I mean, we never, we never cracked, we, we got to 3% one year. I, I think you could see significantly better than that for a sustained amount of time if you really did just magically reduce all those frictions right away because we just would have a much more efficient economy. And it's a frustrating argument for some people because I, I don't say exactly where those jobs are going to come from. Like, I can't tell you that, oh, yeah, we're going to create 8 million new amazing, you know, solar panel jobs that are going to be middle class jobs. But, you know, if we could equalize the amount of venture capital that goes to talented women, for example, and right now the disparity is enormous. It's like more than eight in 10 uh, dollars of venture capital go to all white male founding teams. Um, if we could equalize that and give more women a shot, I think we'd have just a boom in really great startup activity that, you know, would create these sorts of things too. So there's all these different ways you can pull levers. And if you did it, I think you just have a, an economy that created a lot more good paying jobs for everybody. Right. So to make the argument, let's just take black men or black people. If we all agree that a better education, a more educated workforce is key to having a stronger economy, you could just look at the statistics based on education levels and funding of education levels in the black community. You could look at the statistics based on the debt load of college debt. These are people who went to college and how that very much disproportionately affects black people. And you, you don't have to know where the gains come from. But if a premise is a more educated workforce essential to gains, and we have these impediments to an educated workforce in terms of black people, then yeah, one should seem to follow the other. Yes, I agree. I, I, I want to I be clear, by the way, education by itself isn't, is not enough. Um, no. we, see, we see, for example, that, you know, black Americans who who graduate from colleges, even you know, with with comparable colleges, comparable degrees, still earn far less than the same graduate who is white, and that right. is evidence of discrimination in the economy. And so this is this is like the sort of like you can look at that and say that's not fair. 
which, which it isn't. Um, and you can also look at that and say, oh, that's an opportunity for the economy. If we could pull uh, ourselves up, if we could allow black Americans to achieve the same outcomes with their degrees that white Americans do, that would be better for everybody. They, they'd earn more money, they create more, they do more. It's not a zero-sum game. It's actually the opposite. I really think that that's a really important part of, of my argument, which is we're not taking anything away from anybody here. We're just trying to extend more opportunity, which will create more opportunity in exactly the sort of virtuous cycle we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back to one other thing you said, which is that a hot economy for a while will lead to a sustained middle class because of productivity gains. Now, since the denominator in productivity refers to the amount of work put in, since automation leads to more productivity, is this uh, paradigm you're talking about having a hotter economy with people working fewer hours than we thought of when the middle class was based on manufacturing jobs and the 60s and 70s economy? Well, maybe. I mean, right now, our economy, we, you know, American households do a lot more work now than they did in the post-war era. I mean, it's an increase in household hours worked since, uh, I think, the late 70s, basically more than accounts for the increase in take-home pay for for those households. So it's very possible that, that we'll be able to do it with, with less labor, particularly right now in the pandemic. Everybody is working very, very hard, whether it's the essential workers who are out having to actually physically go to their jobs or the, the people who are working from home who are finding that work-life boundaries have been basically exploded by the pandemic. There is a real strain, I think, uh, and, and push towards more work in American life. Uh, the hope is that technology can become labor-saving and, and productivity-enhancing for most workers. It hasn't been for everybody. I mean, for some people, a computer uh, you know, takes away your job as a, as a secretary or uh, a machine takes away your job on a manufacturing line and you end up with a job where you have to work harder just to earn what you were earning before. Right. A computer used to be a person, now it's a machine. Right. You know, now the idea is we are we could potentially, you know, with the right investments and the right kind of economy, not, you know, find more and more ways to help everyone benefit from technology to become more productive and to reap the gains of that productivity as opposed to seeing their bosses or their employer or whatever reap those gains. Okay. So last thing I want to ask you about people who haven't read the book um, will note that it's shot through with racial consciousness. I mean, there's a lot of blame lame laid at the feet of white men. And I would say, if you know American history, sure, of course, that's uh, that's deserved. They were making all the decisions for 200 or so years, including all the bad ones. But my question is, so it's blurbed on the back by Ibram X. Kendi, and also Arthur Brooks, who was, what, once in charge of AEI? So that's kind of an impressive array of blurbs. But do you think that when we talk about breaking down the barriers for black workers, potential black workers in the economy, that the discussion we're having about race, which includes a lot of things, but I think mostly like the Ibram Kendi discussion of anti-racism, is that addressing directly the sort of racial barriers that you think are essential to creating a new middle class? I think a lot of it is. I mean, I also think, again, to like be very specific here, it's not, it's powerful white men. And it is particularly like white men like me. And I, so I, I'm a white guy. I'm a white guy with a, with a college education uh, who works, you know, in the quote elite media. You know, I, I think that in general, it is white men who fit my profile who have benefited over the last <laughs> 
entirety of American history from the American economy and who have made the decisions that have held people back. Part of what I argue here is that, you know, whites, white men and women who did not go to college have a lot more in common with workers of color than, than they do with elite white men. But the elite white men have been really good about dividing those groups against each other so that they can hold power. So I think some of that is what the national conversation about uh, racism that we're having right now is trying to get at. But I, but I think that there are other things that may, maybe go beyond that. I mean, I think we, we have to talk about everything here. We need to talk about quality of education. We need to talk about access to education. We need to really talk about building wealth and the way that um, discrimination holds that back. I mean, for for a for a black family in a middle class black majority black neighborhood their home values appreciate at a far lower rate than a white family in a in a comparable neighborhood that's majority white i mean th- these are these are things that are maybe not talked about on the individual level of racism discussion that we're having but that are systemic issues and 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 many of them have policy components so um, I think we need to have that full discussion. I've actually been encouraged by a lot of that discussion, but I, but I am discouraged by the degree to which it has become sort of politicized and that um, this idea of, you know, I think there are, frankly, uh, a lot of people out there trying to once again tell, um, you know, middle-class white people that something is being taken away from them by, by efforts to reduce discrimination. And I just, I think that that is the part that is really missing is, is this idea that like, hey, we're all in this together. If we can truly maximize the ability of everyone in our country to fulfill their full potential, it's good for all of us. It's good for white people. It's good for black people. It's good for immigrants. It's it's good for Latinos. It's good for everyone. And that um, that's just not a very winning political argument to make, to be honest, but I think it's true. Jim Tankersley covers economics for the New York Times. He is the author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Jim, thank you. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. There's this odd little hill, maybe more of a mound. I could see it from my back window. To so many, it would seem unattractive, perhaps even repellent. But I can't ignore it. I'm drawn to it. Do you know what this hill is? Its official name is the stock trades of multimillionaire Republican senators from Georgia. But to me, it is my hill to die on. So yeah, listen. I'm a podcaster. I want you to listen. When I say listen, I want you to listen and not to skip. So I will make you a deal. I am about to preview what I'm going to say here. And you may wish to gird yourself for the actual discussion and perhaps skip the specifics. I recommend waiting in. I really like it. I think it'll be great. But let's say you are of the opinion that Kelly Leffler is a bad senator who should lose her Senate seat to Raphael Warnock in Georgia and has at least been blasé about giving the appearance of a conflict of interest and self-dealing while trading stocks as a member of the Senate. I agree with all that. I agree. And you will not hear anything to disabuse you of the general notion. But what I am going to do is make the case that not each and every allegation against her has merit, even ones that are getting a lot of play. So listen, if you're uninterested in the specific details that have lately been widely touted because you still have a steadfast belief, a warranted belief, I would say, that Leffler has got to go and isn't as ethical as she needs to be, I do get it. So you know what I say? Meet me in exactly four minutes, 42 seconds from now, I will sum up, and you should be there for that conclusion. The conclusion will resonate far beyond the hill itself. But before I can tell you why I've chosen to die on this hill, 
blood must be drawn. Here goes. The Huffington Post broke, quote unquote, broke a story yesterday. Senator Kelly Leffler's husband bought stock in sectors set to benefit from then secret bill. While Republicans privately drafted the CARES Act, Leffler's husband was buying shares in corporations that would reap millions, a Huffington Post or HuffPost investigation found. That's true. You know, those words are all true. Question is, was it because of insider information? HuffPost says, or strongly hints, yes. Here's how the story begins. In mid-March, with the American economy in freefall, Jeffrey Sprecker, husband to Kelly Leffler, R. Georgia, and chair of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, mm -hmm, made an unusual change to his stock portfolio. He started buying. For weeks, the couple had done almost nothing but sell. Okay, if you're going to make a case against someone, it doesn't help to lead with an inaccuracy. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution have already done stories, good stories, grounded stories on Leffler stock trades, published a list of the family trades. So remember, the HuffPost starts out with, by mid-March, Sprecher and Leffler rarely did anything but sell. Here, in fact, are the March records. March 2nd, DuPont purchase. March 3rd, DuPont purchase. March 6th, Brooking Holdings purchase. 10th, Chevron and DuPont purchase, and the 13th, Prudential purchase. A lot of these were sales or purchases in the same company. You heard DuPont twice. They sold shares of Ross stores in a couple of instances on the 2nd and on the 3rd. If you were noting, on the 2nd, they sold Ross for less. Mm -hmm. But there were six purchases and eight sales up until the weeks before mid-March. Going on from there, the article's main charge is that a clause in the CARES Act called the Carry Back Provision might have been the motivation for certain trades. It's impossible to discern intent from a stock sale, so Huffington Post makes gestures about just how unusual the purchase was and how it turned out well for the Lafflers. HuffPo quotes an ethics expert saying it would be unethical to trade on insider information and faults Leffler for not supporting more stringent trading requirements. She should as a matter of law, support more stringent requirements as a matter of politics that would amount to something like an admission of guilt, better stick to, I did nothing wrong and was 100% cleared. She was, in fact, cleared. What HuffPo doesn't offer is a compelling case that nothing else could explain the stock purchases, which, as I've demonstrated, weren't as rare as they say they were. Of course, there are hundreds of motivations to explain what was a steady pattern of some sales and some purchases. Here's one. A more careful look at Leffler's SEC disclosures revealed that she sold put options in a number of companies that she or her stockbroker later purchased. Put options are essentially a bet that the stock price will go down and go down they did. I consulted with a couple of traders and money managers who I know who said it's a common tactic to hedge against a put with an outright purchase of a stock or to lock in gains by purchasing a stock in which you have successfully made an options bet on. Either way, it is notable that the purchase of stock was in companies that the Lefflers had previously traded on, held positions in, and therefore could be related to an overall trading strategy, a trading strategy far apart from they knew the CARES Act was going to have some goodies for certain companies. Of course, someone who wanted to paint those trades in the worst light can look at the very sale of put options I'm telling you about and find meaning in that. 
cast the Lefflers as self-dealing or maybe hypocritical if you contrast that with future statements downplaying the severity of the virus. The point is this, the Lefflers made lots of trades, and if you squint, you can tell yourself almost any story about them. If you're the Huffington Post, whose readers would like to hear anything bad about the Lefflers and their trades, you are incentivized to write those stories. I'm not alleging that they were concocted. I'm not alleging that they got facts wrong. But from their perspective, it's hard to be wrong or to misstep if you say Kelly Leffler at least gave the appearance of a conflict of interest. I mean, to the Huffington Post, I guess to its readers, to the Daily Beast and to Mother Jones and all the other places that republicize the Huffington Post quote unquote scoop. It appeared like a conflict of interest to you and Kelly Leffler can't prove otherwise. She is also disincentivized to using much of her time to get into that argument. And now, right now, I welcome back those of you who skipped the specific details out of self-preservation. So here's why it matters. Huffington Post wrote up a serious accusation that falls seriously short, I think, echoed by, like I said, Mother Jones, Daily Beast, many Democratic Party actors, progressive activists who would like to see Kelly Leffler lose. It's pretty much impossible to rebut. You could say it's Leffler's own fault for putting herself in the position to even have to rebut it. But I don't think, strictly speaking, they've proven anything. I would believe it more if credible mainstream news sources like the New York Times, Washington Post, or Atlanta Journal-Constitution pick up on these charges, which they certainly know about, and match the story, or even advance the story. But until then, news consumer be warned, I say. The lack of information doesn't only come from one side. The disinformation might not even be driven by bad motives. Every single editor and advancer of the story might have given it a thorough or thorough-ish vetting and said, sure, this this doesn't pass the smell test. After all, the HuffPo article ends with this quote from Oregon Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley. There is no way that the public can't sense, can't absolutely smell that this is corrupt. Now, that was in reference to a bill he proposed to restrict stock trades by members of the Senate. But guess what? That bill is not the law. And the smell of corruption doesn't necessarily mean corruption. It could be an olfactory hallucination or simply that an overwhelmingly noisome waft can have many causes. The Gist. Umpru Deperu Dupru, and thanks for listening.